Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about what it's like to work on the business, sales, advertising, and management side of a digital media company, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest logged 13 years as the president and general manager of the Washington Post, leading the transformation of that company from a print-centric business model to a digital powerhouse. But before I introduce you to Stephen Hills, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that falls far short of the Washington Post. And it comes out on Monday mornings with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Stephen Hills, currently the CEO and founder of Hillscape Consulting, which specializes in helping firms and senior executives increase effectiveness while creating work-life balance. Steve is also a very experienced professional trustee and board director, having served on boards of a wide variety of highly successful organizations, including Avalon Bay, Sonatype, and Classified Ventures. However, without a doubt, the vast majority of Steve's professional life, as in almost three decades of it, was spent at the Washington Post Company, including the last 13 of those 30 years, and he served as the president and general manager. During his tenure in the C-suite, Steve was credited with helping to lead the transformation of the Post into a top digital media company, growing traffic and engagement by more than 200% over several years through innovative leadership of technology journalism. That culminated in Fast Company magazine giving the Post an award for Most Innovative Media Company in the World in 2017. Steve also created the business case that convinced Post ownership to sell the paper to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. After leaving the Post, Steve became the founding director of the Georgetown University Law Center's business program, where he's created a curriculum and is leading the development of courses to teach law students the fundamentals of business. He's also the chairman of the board of the Maryland, D.C. chapter of the Nature Conservancy. Steve, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated at 3 p.m. here on the East Coast and ready to go? It's ironic. I actually don't drink coffee, but that's because I am perpetually caffeinated, so I am ready to go. You're just a naturally caffeinated guy? I am. 
How did you get that way? Where did that I, come from? I, I used to drink coffee, but I, I don't know. I, I think it, it may be over-caffeinated. So I think I'm, uh, I think I'm just born that way. See, I love the taste of it. I really do. It's, yeah, I miss the taste of it. That's yeah, true. It's less about the kick of caffeine, although that helps in the morning. And later in the day, like I still have my first cup of coffee here and it's it's cold, but right. I'll, I'll, I'll take a little sip or something like that. Perfect. So as I was getting ready for this interview, Steve, it occurred to me, both of us have spent the majority of our professional lives in the field of journalism, mm-hmm. even though we were on two different sides of that industry not because I worked in broadcast television at CNN while you were at the Post, but rather because I was in the field as a journalist gathering the news while you were making sure the lights were on and the bills were paid and the journalist salaries at the Post were paid. That was the goal, yes. <laughs> and and you did it. I mean, I, I, have, I have not heard any stories that happened while you were at the post that said, hey, there were no checks in the mail. That's right. So thumbs up. So before we get into what you did, especially during your final stretch as president and GM, I thought it might be interesting, Steve, and valuable for our young listeners to get a sense from you as a strategist as to where you see the media industry heading, not just in 2021, but beyond that, what trends do you see on the horizon? Yeah, I think one thing that's become more clear to people is that quality journalism really matters. So I think the one thing that you are seeing, and I think this will continue, is the real quality brands, Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. You know, the real quality brands are going to be able to survive and thrive because it doesn't matter if it's print or digital. It doesn't matter what the form is. Quality journalism matters. Quality journalism is expensive. And so, you know, those those platforms will continue to thrive, I think, o- over the long term. Then there's going to be a battle and just multitudes of, of different kinds of digital content because you can develop high quality digital content at low cost that has a certain, it doesn't have the same kind of scale. But I think there's going to be so many different smaller outlets that then it becomes a very fragmented, very competitive game for all the rest. And there's, and then out of that, they'll emerge, I think, a few players who can then try to gain scale as well. But I think there'll be a lot of very high quality content that has relatively low operating costs. And there'll be lots of sort of thriving times and the real question for those firms is how do you create discovery? How do you how do people find out about you? But that's where social media and other things come in. So, you know, there's I think really that a few really big players and then just a huge number of small players that can actually end up being relatively successful. So I think that there'll be, you know, in some ways there's potential for a sort of golden age of new and creative content to emerge. That's amazing. Are you also worried that there'll be a proliferation of fake news outlets and papers like digital papers, I should say, like Breitbart News and others that are actually proliferating 
lies and yeah, I gave you, I gave you, I gave you the happy side of the street. So <laughs> yeah. now, you know, on the sunny side of the street, I'll give you the dark side of the street, which you just talked about. I mean, one of the problems is that the old saying, you know, the lawyers used to say, you know, you you can have your own opinions, but you you know can't have your own facts. Well, now people can have their own facts, and the facts are in quotes. The famous Kellyanne Conway line of alternative facts. So. Unfortunately, you can choose to self-affirmation, affirmation bias, confirmation bias is a, a proven problem in our you know, logical fallacy we all can fall subject to, which is that we want to hear things that confirm what we believe, even if what we believe is not right. And now with the ability for people to say, let me find people who say what I think, even if it's wrong, even if it's demonstrably not true, that ability will continue. So unfortunately, we're going to see the dark pockets of the web where people can, you know, live a whole life consuming news that isn't right. And there's a whole business model that supports that. So unfortunately, there will be very successful media companies that thrive on that unfortunate tendency in human beings. And so I think that's going to continue as well. Well, when you started at The Post... We didn't have to worry about digital then <laughs> yeah. or really about the fake news certainly proliferating. The year was yeah. 1987. Mm-hmm. And to put that into historical context, Ronald Reagan was president in the U.S. A gallon of gas was just 89 cents. And something I know my 16-year-old son would really care about. The first episode of the show, The Simpsons, aired. (laughs) Um, Right? Mm -hmm. And in terms of the journalism industry, specifically print journalism, it was thriving. Mm -hmm. If you fast-forwarded to when you took over as president and general manager in 2002, how were things looking then for print journalism? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because, and I'd started out as a print journalist out in California. I was a sports reporter for San Mateo Times. And I started the publication myself out there, did it for a couple of years. So I, I started on both the, first the journalism side, then the journalism and business combined side. And, but when I came out, I think I came out of business school, handwriting was on the wall already that there was, there were problems, you know, so you could see, you know, circulation had peaked, it was starting to decline. And digital was, you know, just starting to, to become more prevalent. And, and so pretty clear, pretty early on, by 1992, it became quite clear to me and to a lot of others that, that the print publication was in real jeopardy because of the Internet. And so by the time I took over as GM, that was just crystal clear. But there were still debates because it was very successful, very financially successful. But, you know, many, many people could see where it was heading. So we really could see that there was a tidal wave coming that would change the business model fundamentally. And for, for reasons I won't get into in too much depth because it's actually fairly complicated, a lot of people didn't really understand where the economics came from. But to put it very briefly, the, um, the economics of journalism never was supported. So people never paid for the quality of journalism. What made newspapers so powerful was classified advertising. You know, people had you could send pre-printed advertising and you could send your homes for sale if you wanted a job, if you wanted to look for a car. That was what created all the money. It was a distribution monopoly, a print and distribution monopoly that no one could deal with and no one, no one could really compete with. And then journalism became an afterthought because of the profits generated from that. 
papers like the Post were able to plow the money into journalism. So people think that journalism created the audience, created the money. It was actually the audience for all the things, including classified, created the marketplace, created the print distribution monopoly that allowed the profits that then funded the journalism. So the problem was once that was stripped away, once the classified products were stripped away, then the business model was really challenged. Mm. So what does it mean to be the president and general manager at a legacy newspaper like The Post? Yeah, so it was a family-owned paper. So we had the people like Catherine Weymouth, or for, for a long time was Catherine Graham's granddaughter, Don Graham's niece. So you had the family ownership. And then the, the president general manager was the person who tried to you know, help them really run the business, right? Saying, okay, now we want to make sure that the legacy of this business is served. And then how do we do that? How do we actually execute this? How do we make sure that we can both deliver profits? Because the Washington Post is actually a public company, you know, publicly traded stock. So how do we actually make sure we can deliver profits and deliver great journalism? And that was really my job to try to help figure out how that was done and try to make sure that we have all the levers working. You know, how are we creating print and the, the, the print business that is successful as possible with advertising and circulation? And how are we building a digital business that has digital advertising and digital circulation revenues? And how are we harmonizing those while also making sure we have great newsroom? And that was the job. So in terms of responsibilities, what were your responsibilities as president and what were your responsibilities yeah. as GM? Yeah, so basically it's the same. It was I had responsibility really for everything except the newsroom. And the newsroom, I worked very closely with the newsroom to figure out what to do, but the newsroom when they in terms of what's the newsroom going to write, how are they going to cover their stories, the newsroom has complete independence. And they could do whatever they want to. So I would not ever be involved with we, I'd be involved with them talking about new sections, things they wanted to do. How do we support what they're doing? But not what are they going to write? And, you know, what are they going to say? That's newsroom had total independence. But I was responsible for really all the rest of the stuff. Could you tease that out a little bit? So, you know, it was basically circulation, advertising, technology, human resources, accounting, finance, you know, the, the building, the, the physical plant and sort of, sort of like all, all things, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what did it mean to be the general manager? Like why was your title president and GM? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good question. So, so part of it was, I think, you know, these titles are sometimes works of art. They don't necessarily, you know, mean anything particularly. I think the reason for that was just sort of, it sort of encompasses the, the breadth of what I did, you know, and so that was why I think they added on general manager, just to sort of signify the breadth of, of the responsibilities. Gotcha. So could you take us into a typical day for you, Steve, when you were still at the post? What were all of the different things you were juggling? How did yeah. you like to organize your day? And if we were a fly on the wall, what would we have been hearing and seeing you do? Yeah. So, so you know, it's the great thing about the media business is there's no such thing as a typical day. You know, it's just always all over what you had to do. But so divide it in this way that you had the, the print business, which was how do you deal with print advertising and print circulation? 
But then particularly over time, I would let the people, certain people who are really experts in that, take care of that business because I've been doing it for a very long time. There's a lot of expertise around that. So increasingly, I spent a lot more of my time on digital because that was the growing business that had a lot more questions and choices. Now, we also have choices about difficult choices about reducing costs on the print side of the business but and supporting it, making sure you didn't undercut it. But then we had to spend a lot of time on digital. It's like, how are we going to grow the audience? How are we going to develop new advertising streams? How are we going to become... A, so a lot of it was we developed the paid circulation model. So I spent a lot of time working with research and trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to make this work to develop a metered system so that we can pay and get digital subscriptions, which we grew faster than anybody than any digital audience in my final year. That's, as you mentioned before, we grew more digital audience than any other digital platform in the world. And so, and we ended up, you know, with millions of paid subscribers. We built that from scratch. So we sit around and say, how do we do this? And what kind of content do we create? And how do we create virality? How do we work with social media? So a lot of time spent on that, a lot of time spent on analytics and on figuring out pricing, pricing packages and how to test those and a lot of digital allows for a lot of iterative testing of a lot of different ideas. So I'm I'm a sort of marketing guy. That's my background. And from a marketing point of view, it's just fascinating what digital media allows in terms of complex decision-making and testing and learning. And that was something we did a lot of. So that's probably what I... And then also, fly on the wall, you'd also say, hear me saying, you know, Hey, there's a problem. Such a, here's a personnel issue that came up. Here's something that happened over here. Somebody did this, somebody did that. So, you know, with thousands of employees, there's always something going on there too. So there's, those issues would always come up regularly. You mentioned in the Espresso Shots episode and check out show notes to see if it's already dropped. That's where we get into how you break into the business side of digital media. You mentioned the importance of having a background for our young listeners in data science, data analytics, being able to slice and dice the numbers because so much of the business model now revolves around analyzing the data that you're able to gather. Yeah. And I'm a numbers guy. You know, I sort of, even though I was a philosophy major, I've always been sort of a numbers person. And I think the thing about numbers is you can get lost in it. It can become just analytics, just like running spreadsheets. But the key thing is a conceptual ability. It's ability to say, what does this all mean? Because one of the things about data is there's so much data that it can become overwhelming. That someone can say, look at all the data we have. And that's like, that's useless because you say, well, now I'm just drowning in data. I don't even know what to make of this. What's really valuable is that someone comes in and says, hey, I've parsed this data and here are the four interesting things you should know about our our viewers and our and our habitual viewers, and here are the th- and then say, okay, now this is taking data and making it into useful information, and that's what's really powerful. Is you have the conceptual ability to sort of figure out. It's like any science, it's like a science project. Like, what am I looking for? What do I believe? What are my hypotheses? What do I think might be the case? Let me test that. Let me test this. So, I think in the end, what I found was, you know, I, I got into the journalism side because I love the creative side. I love to write and you know, writing is something I always love to do. But then I found that there's so much creativity in the business side, that like creating these packages, creating answers for this, thinking about these questions. And the, the creative opportunities on the business side are really, really great. I think particularly on the data analytics side, that the, the ability to both understand the numbers and the tools for 
manipulate the numbers, but also be able to make sense out of them. That's a really creative exercise. Critical thinking, super important. (laughs) Yeah, yes. When you started at the Post in 1987, you had just graduated from Harvard Business School and you stepped into a role as a sales representative. Why did you take that job, Steve? And what were you hoping to get out of it? Yeah, a lot of my peers at, at business school said the same thing. Like, wait, what are you doing? You know, I'd been a CEO of my own company and, and I'd done it for two years. And I come to the HBS and I get out of there and I'm taking a job as a sales rep. So, but what I believed was, I believed that in order to really understand the business, I wanted to be a manager and be a long-term manager at the business. I believe that you had to know the customers. And I think by coming in there, I got to know the customers who paid the most money. I had to learn all about the product. What, what was it that we were delivering to whom or the demographics? I had to understand our distribution system. I had to really understand so much about the business that that I thought would serve me well. And, and it did. I think there were other people who came and didn't want to sort of go into that grittier role. who wanted to be much more analytical, much more sort of removed from the customer. And I, I'm glad I did that because I think it allowed me to succeed by learning about the customers. And then I was able to sort of progress pretty quickly, I think, by virtue of knowing the problems on the ground. I, I, you know, I could say, okay, here's what's really going on out there. Here are the changes. I saw some changes happening in the marketplace that were very impactful. I was able to influence the organization to change because of my knowledge gained from sort of being on the front line. I love that. Because it says so much about you, Steve, and personal anecdote here, I wish I had swallowed my ego (laughs) and gotten into a role that was below my pay grade when I left journalism. So I moved from journalism where I had spent 20 years into PR I let my ego dictate what my title should be in a field I had never been in, in public relations. P.S. I had never managed anybody either. And Mm -hmm. I was a senior vice president. And that was a mistake. You were so much smarter to swallow hard and take a role that was way below your pay grade as a sales rep. Well, you know, I don't know about that, but I'll tell you one thing that was very interesting. This woman I once thought was just very talented. She she was very talented. And I wanted to promote her. I said, hey, you know, are you ready? You know, it's time for a promotion at the post. It's time to at least look into jobs. And she said, you know, I haven't learned enough yet at my current job. I want to spend another six months to a year in this job so I can really learn it. I walked away from that conversation saying, wow, how impressive is that? Here's someone saying, I don't want to throw my hat in the ring for a promotion, even though I probably would get it because I'll be more effective long term if I learn more. I mean, that that stuck with me because it was like, okay, that's that says something. And for our young listeners, I think this is a super important point because one of the things I read this amazing book by he's actually a computer scientist, but he's put a lot of time and energy and research into looking at how people find their passion and the fact that most young people, most college students and recent graduates haven't yet landed on their passion. And the way to get there is by building what he calls rare and valuable skills, really 
becoming expert in something. In Steve's case, it was really in sales and marketing. Rather than letting your, I don't know if it's ego or if it's just competitive nature, which I appreciate, dictate how quickly you progress. Now, having said that, Steve did get promoted at a pretty steady clip year after year, moving into marketing manager of retail after he'd been the sales rep. And then he was promoted to become the director of advertising for small business. Then he became the director of retail advertising. And then he became the vice president of advertising and eventually the vice president of sales and marketing. But you were really developing deep expertise in advertising and sales and marketing. Yeah, yeah the interesting thing is I, I end up becoming the, the youngest vice president they had at the post. But but I was I didn't skip. I, I skipped one step along the way. And it's interesting, the one step I skipped I would have been better off had I been in that job as well. There was one level I skipped and I didn't quite understand it. And people would say to me afterwards, well, you know, you never had that job. And they were right because I didn't really appreciate that job. I know it was a really difficult job. I was glad to have skipped it, but I also didn't really fully understand it. So I would have actually been better off had I touched that base too, because not just touching the base, it's learning a whole piece of the organization that I ended up missing. So, you know, you can't, you can't do it all, but no, your, your point is well taken that really understanding each level is very helpful because if you can see, have done a job, you can appreciate what it's like, which is why it's so great for companies like Disney, where they, they make people be a character and for a day or, or more a week, you know, it's nice to be able to actually put yourself in the shoes of the, of as many people as you can in an organization. So what was it you skipped? I skipped a job called category manager. It's basically the, the, you know, from between a sales rep, there's a manager of the sales reps, and then I became a director. So I skipped that manager's job, went right to director because I created this unit, and they let me run the unit that I created. And so that was that was the, the level that I skipped. Were you intentional about building what might become, and for all practical purposes, was a 30-year career at the post, or did it just happen? And I ask you that because while it was more common for professionals, let's say, of our generation to put down roots at a single company at that time, it feels like there's less and less of that yeah. loyalty today. Yeah. And I think I think there's less loyalty because there's less loyalty both ways. Right. Yes. I think it used to be that companies were loyal, but, but it, it is now reciprocal that neither side is loyal. Interestingly, at my like, I think, you know, 15th reunion or something like that, the business school talked to this one buddy of mine, still a great buddy of mine. And we were the only two people still at the same company we've gone to from business school. So it's, it was even been my day. It was a, a great rarity. So I think I think I did not build it with great intentionality, but I think I'll describe it this way, that I was intentional about certain things. I decided I want a culture where, certain, where things were valued that I valued. And where integrity, where the long term, where work life balance, where, you know, quality, high quality, ambition, all those things were all valued. And those aren't sort of conflicting. They're just, they were all valued. And so I came to a place where that was valued. So that was good. And then I, I wanted to learn. And by wanting to learn at the ground floor, that was also valued greatly by the people in charge. They didn't like that people come in, parachute in, you know, fancy 
people with all you know this fancy knowledge and just coming into the top. They like people who work who are willing to roll up their sleeves. So I think by that, by virtue of choosing that kind of environment and then deciding to go into the ground floor, I certainly was intentional there. But then I had great mentors, and that's a key thing for anybody who then helped me become more intentional about my career. They said, well, here's the advantage of this or that. If you do this, this is good. This would be helpful. And I had people who really helped me. I became much more intentional. I got married. I had kids. And I started to become more intentional about my career. And I started to think more about career strategy and more how to sort of balance, you know, what I give to the company, but also making sure, you know, what am I getting back from the company? So I think I had really good help along the way that made all the difference. What advice would you give our young listeners, Steve, about the relative advantages of putting down roots at a company that, let's say, aligns with your values and has a great ethos and whatnot, work-life balance versus looking for the next opportunity at another company and maybe being able to leapfrog certain positions, certain stages? Yeah, I think there's no right answer here, you know, for sure. I mean, there are lots of different ways to, to do things. I came close to leaving many times and, and abstaining. And so I, I'd say this, I'd say that first off, that finding the right kind of cultural fit is going to be very important. And I used to say, we don't handcuff anybody to the desk. People say, I don't want, I don't want to come to the post. I don't want to be here 20 years because a lot of people were there. I was like, you know, people are actually making choices to stay. So one thing is there are a lot of places that are, that have very high retention rates. And I think that's a really good thing. So then you can potentially growth hides all sins. So if you're in a growing company, then you can find that you can actually get the best of both worlds, which is you can get new experiences, new knowledge, you can move quickly, and you have a track record. You have people around you who know you. You can take the long-term view. If you move too quickly to new places, the problem is you don't know what the leadership of that new place is like. You don't know Maybe there's a new manager that doesn't know you, and then you have a bad quarter or two, and they say you're no good. And so, you know, you can have things like that happen. But, you know, you can also get new skills from that. You can also get, you know, develop new skills. So I think still, if you go to a fast growing place with a great culture, you can get the best of both worlds. But there's nothing wrong with it. And at some point, you've always got to ask yourself the question that I always ask myself, which is if I look forward for the next year to 18 months, will I, do I think I'll be learning and growing? And if I'd say no, then I'd say, okay, I got to get a promotion. I got to move on. I got to do something different. And sometimes I had to even help change the job myself. I had to, I was in one job, vice president of advertising for like seven years. I had to change it. I actually did some new things. It ended up becoming phenomenal. It created a whole new business line. Cause I said, okay, I have to reinvent this job myself. I have to make it more for myself. So I think you can take a lot of, get a lot of agency and actually try to do more. And the company might say, if it's a good company, we'll say, okay, sure. We'd love to have you do more. So what, what do you have in mind? And you can help build up your career that way. So I don't, I think jumping ship always has risk and, and, and it's not a bad thing, but if you can do it within a company, if you can get more learning and more experience within your company, I'm a fan of that. Great. Well, speaking of learning, your final year at The Post We've mentioned now a couple of times Fast Company awarded the post the most innovative media company in the world. Could you just very briefly give us a sense of how the post had changed? How had it innovated to help it earn that moniker? 
Yeah, so we did some pretty cool things. So what we had a phenomenal, it, it's all about hiring the right person, right? That's all, that's all really, that's the key to, to being a, an executive. And we hired a guy named Shailesh Prakash, who's still the, the head of our technology group. And he really helped reinvent that whole group. And so what we were able to do, for instance, we were able to create a whole set of technologies that now that the Post actually sells its technology to other publishers to allow them to publish on digital platforms. We, we developed a homegrown set of technologies that was so good for a content management system, what's what called CMS, that you build digital platforms around. We became so good at doing that that we could develop something that other people wanted to buy and use. So, you know, we did that on the side while we were also, you know, building our own for, for you know, primarily building it for our own use. And then we also developed a, a new a metered system that's very much like the New York Times system. We made innovations and changes to it that were really pretty cool. And then the way we delivered our content, we had new ideas for new partnerships we did. We did partnerships with newspapers, with Amazon Prime, you know, where we allowed people to sample our product. And then they ended up becoming subscribers over time. So we just did a lot of things that, that really sort of helped us go from no digital subscribers to several million digital subscribers in a very short period of time. And that was, that was a lot of fun. I bet. Well, I'd like to flash back to a time when I'm guessing you were also having a lot of fun when you were in college. You <laughs> went to Yale University. And mm -hmm. as you've mentioned, you majored in philosophy. Mm -hmm. Again, very quickly, did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? Oh, well, I, I, I didn't at all, or I probably wouldn't have been a philosophy major. So, so no, I mean, oddly, there weren't any philosophers wanted jobs when I got out. So that's why I ended up having to become a bartender. So to actually make ends meet, because it was a recession, there were gas lines in 1981, interest rates were 18%. So, so no, not at all. I just did what I loved. I loved philosophy, and I still do. I mean, I think it's just fascinating. It teaches you how to think in, in an interesting way. I, I, I loved it and wouldn't change it at all. But I had no idea what I'd do. I thought I'd be a writer because I started as an English major, changed over to philosophy, but still loved writing. And that's why I got into the sort of the journalism side of the business. But I really had no idea. I think I could have been had I been more on top of the game. You know, I had a, lot, I had a great time. I had a lot of fun in college. But I think I wasn't, I know I wasn't as, there were people who had their careers planned out and knew so much more. And I'm glad for my sort of my life in terms of the fun I had that I wasn't that program, but I could have been a little more program. I could have said to have a little bit more guidance and people saying, hey, you know, dude, you got to figure this out. So I think I started out a little behind the eight ball, getting out of college. That's why I had to be a bartender. And I was also reporting and bartending and staying up late and trying to burn the candle at both ends. And I think I had to make up for lost time. But I think I, I grew up a little later than many do. But I think also I was able to in those days. And I think that the next generation, I have kids who are 25 and 23. I think that they don't have the luxury of waiting that long, you know, to figure things out. So I think they have to figure it out a little earlier than I did. I think that was a luxury that we that I had. Were there any extracurricular activities, teams or clubs, volunteer work, part-time or full-time jobs that you had in college that in hindsight actually were helping you hone skills that you realized were valuable once you'd graduated? You know, I so wish I could say yes, but the answer is really no. I think I think that I didn't I mean I look I, I I did a lot of sports stuff and that was great for teamwork. But in, in some ways I think that what really all oh, my skills were, I mean the, the classes I, I took them seriously and I really studied and I think that 
allow me to parse problems and think analytically. That was the stuff that actually helped me the most in my career. But I could have done more. I think I do not have good lessons to impart to people. Maybe my lesson to impart to people is you can have a good time in college and not do a lot of stuff and still be okay. <laughs> but, but I really could have learned more. I think if I went back again, I think I would, I, I would try to become more disciplined about learning other things, to, you know, taking other skills and, and taking advantage of opportunities that, that I, I really didn't take advantage of. So I could be wrong here. I could be reading the dates wrong, but weren't mm-hmm. you a fuller brush salesman while you were in college? Yes, I was. So I, so I guess actually I thought about, I think about that more. You're right. That was in, when I was on the breaks between. And so that was actually a phenomenal experience where I had to make money in the summers. And so I was a fuller brushman. And so that was that basically meant for since this generational lot of idea what that means. I'd go door to door in San Francisco, where I was, where I'm from. Go door to door in in businesses. I'd sell these products to mostly the secretaries, sometimes the guys who are running these businesses or the guys who are working there. And so it was actually pretty good money, but really hard work and really difficult. A lot of doors slam in your face. A lot of people saying, you know, what are you doing in here? Get out of here. So that was actually really a good skill. So I, I funny, I don't think of that as a college time, because it was when I was home from college, but that, that was a very useful set of skills that I learned. And I'm a big believer in sales skills and people learning sales at a young age, because, you know, you have to, what sales is, people think about sales is pushing people into things. It's actually understanding people's needs and being a good listener is a lot of what being a good salesperson is. And then being persistent and then following through. And I think those are all things that, that those were helpful. So how did you end up starting your own newspaper. You were yeah. the president of the Bay City Publications. Yeah. So that's a little sort of long story to make it short though. I was a reporter and I ended up taking a job as a reporter and ad salesperson, which I just thought this is the most interesting job I've ever heard of. And the reason it was that is they wanted to make money, but they also, okay, you can be a reporter. We can't pay you that much. So we'll have you be a salesperson. You can pay you to do that and you get to write on your own. So I got to do that and do both. And I found out I had a real skill for selling ads. And then I became marketing director of this thing because I had some good ideas. I realized there was a whole thing that I sort of got turned on to that, about marketing and what it was to think about customers and positioning. I started to understand this stuff. I sort of had a knack for that. And then it went out of business because it was very mismanaged. So I went around to people, the advertisers, and said, we're publishing under new management. I didn't tell them new management was me. And, <laughs> that, I, and that, I, that I had 2000 bucks I saved as a bartender, and I started out the publication that way. And we did it out of a friend's, basically his living room. Then we got space in the warehouse and eventually you know, did it for a year and a half and built it up to a, it was the largest controlled circulation means free publication, business publication in Northern California. But it was very skin, yeah, skin of our teeth because we had no capital. I, you know, people said I, I should have had hundreds of thousands of dollars. I had two. And so we always were undercapitalized and always just trying to make it. But it was a f- phenomenal experience. And I loved it. I learned so much from that experience. I'm really a fan of people doing things in small businesses where you really get to have a hands-on understanding of what a business is like. Because I was doing everything in a business. I was writing stories, put, selling ads, you know, p- pasting the paper up literally together, doing all of that, helping you know, the whole thing. It just, just became really a great learning experience. It sounds like it. Well, speaking of learning experiences, I try to ask all time for coffee guests these final two questions, Steve. 
And the first one is if you could share a time in your professional life when you struggled, maybe you failed or face planted. And the reason that I ask that is not because I'm looking to humiliate my guests, <laughs> far from it. Yeah. It's really because I want our young listeners to appreciate that even those like Steve, who built an incredibly successful professional life, struggled and and maybe failed at times. And so the most important part of this story, Steve, is how you persevered and yeah. whether there was a takeaway lesson that you may have learned in the process. Yeah, well, one, one comes to mind is I'd been you know head of marketing for a short time. I hired someone who became the head of marketing underneath me, head of doing our advertising. And uh, this person developed a campaign and we'd gotten rid of our ad agency and the campaign was not good. And I said, let me take it to the vice presidents and I'll show it because I didn't want her to have to have her first debut being showing something that wasn't that good. I helped to fix it a little bit. I helped to create a little bit better. We showed this thing and then the editor said, who is responsible for this? This is terrible. This is even a black guy. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. How could this get? And I sat there and looked and I said, I had thought about it. I'm thinking about throwing her under the bus, throwing everyone under the bus. And I just said, I'm responsible because I approved this. I brought it here. And there was dead silence in the whole room. And I said, I'm going to try to fix it. I'm going to see what we can do now to fix this. So I went back and I thought it was me fired that day. And the lesson was that my boss came in and said, hey, you know what? Everybody around the table knew that the woman had developed it. And they were expecting you as the HBS guy to maybe try to throw the people under the bus and try to blame other people. But when you said you were responsible, it was the best thing you could have done. And the people really, and so I thought, wow. Here I was thinking about trying to blame everyone else. And just by taking responsibility, it ended up becoming like a career winning move. So I told my wife when I came home, I said, I had the weirdest day because I thought I was going to get fired. I totally did something that screwed up. But I was able just by saying that taking responsibility ended up being a real success. And the, the, the lesson there is twofold. One is take responsibility for when you screw up because people know you screw up. Don't try to blame other people. And the other is go to a place where the culture is such that you can do that and survive. Oh my gosh. And I will bet, Steve, you earned so much loyalty from your team. Yeah, I think so. I did because it's so easy because everyone else blames everybody else. But I just decided, you know what? This is my responsibility. I really was. Amazing. Amazing advice. And I know your dog is getting impatient because we've yes. been at this for a while. So yes, here's, the, here's the final question so you can go pet the dog. If you could go back to Yale... And do it all over again. You mentioned you'd want to, I don't know, study a little more. What advice would you give yourself, Steve? Yeah, I think advice I give at this point, I'd say try to look at, try to understand what's your, not what your long-term life goals are, but what the, what the things you want to take away, like what, what kind of the kind of jobs you want to get that are attractive to you early enough, and then what skills would be most useful to try to develop for those early on. Even if it's not the courses you take, how what kind of skills would put you in a good position? I think that would be what I would do that I, if I had to go back and do it again. Yeah, and you can do that. You can try it out through internships. That's the whole point of internships, not just so they look good on your resume after you graduate. But it's really to try different things out. Exactly. And I think that's something that 
you know, you, you should, people should take advantage of. And then particularly if you might try it and finally you don't like it, that's a good time to do it rather than after you get out of college. A hundred percent. Fantastic. If you, dear listeners, want to learn more about how to break into digital media on the business and management side of the house, please check out show notes for this episode to see if Steve's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Steve's company is called Hillscape Consulting, which specializes in helping firms and senior executives increase effectiveness while creating work-life balance. Steve, thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. Even though you don't drink coffee, I still got a huge amount out of this and it was just wonderful. Thank you, Andrew. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.